Greetings to all of you this morning. Glad to uh, see all the visitors here and all the regulars. We uh, have been having some messages out of this little blue book. Main things that we believe in the last number of weeks. And when I was asked to do this uh, message, I was given the opportunity to pick my own subject. And so I have. I have picked a, a topic that is not in this little book. An important thing that is in this, or important things that are in that book, many important things, but I've chosen to pick one that's not in that book. And uh, just a little disclaimer here at the beginning, just in case you think it sounds a little like I'm uh, picking a fight or something, I'm not. Uh, I have a full appreciation for this little book. Uh, it's inspirational in lots of ways. I, uh, I'm satisfied with this confession of faith. I'm not com- campaigning to change it. Um, I've enjoyed a number of the topics in there. Last week was a great topic on the kingdom. And I really appreciated that. But uh, I'd like to use this little book as an object lesson this morning. We use this little book to uh, state what we think is important. You see, I've had a little journey with little blue books. I don't know if you know that or not, but I do have a little journey with little blue books. Um, This goes back to 1966. Uh, That's a little before some of you. Okay. But in 1966, I gave my heart to follow Jesus. And I was thoroughly excited about that. I began to really read my Bible differently, to sing songs differently, to worship God differently. Back in 66. And then, just shortly after that, well, I should say that while that's happening, there was also some apostasy happening. And uh, we were part of the Lancaster Conference Mennonite Church in those days. And some of the things were starting to come into the Lancaster Conference that my father was concerned about. Things like uh, radio and television and so on were pressing in on us. And that began the movement now known as the Eastern Mennonite Church. My father went with that, not quite at the beginning, but after he saw for sure that the direction was where he was going, we went with it. The whole family did. And I, bear in mind this, was just a new Christian. Just happy in the Lord. And I was with this new movement that was interested in keeping God's word, keeping it strong. I went to a lot of meetings with them and I heard the people sing with all their heart. And I said, yes, I like that. Well, I attended a Mennonite school. I was in school in those days yet. I attended a Mennonite school of the Lancaster Mennonite Conference. And uh, two families from in that school were 
now attending this new Eastern Church, which was not very popular in those days. Uh, we had devotions every morning at school. And, uh, uh, bless my teacher, he uh, meant it good, I'm sure. But he had uh, the nerve, I would say, to openly criticize before the whole school this new Eastern Mennonite Church, of which I was a part of. So I got a little persecution there, you see. I'm sure he meant it well, but I think he was a little uninformed. And one of the things that he said about this new Mennonite church was they don't even have a discipline. They called them disciplines back then. Same difference. They don't even have a discipline. Well, I knew he was wrong. Because I was there. I thought it rather unfair of him to say that. I thought it was important that he got that straightened out. So the next morning... I brought a discipline of our new church along to him, gave him, put that on his desk in the first thing in the morning. I said, you were wrong yesterday morning. We have one of these. <laughs> okay, so I have a little history with that. Well, time went on. And uh, eventually, as you know, Charity Christian Fellowship began. And and the beginning of Charity Christian Fellowship, they weren't too popular either. And many of the Mennonites criticized the Charity Christian Fellowship. And one of the accusations that they brought out was, they don't have any discipline. Interesting. Well, I remember that uh, Brother Denny used to say, oh yes, we have a discipline. We have a thick one. It's about an inch thick and we bind it in leather. Oh, that's good. I like that. But yeah, we did actually have one of these too. I'm not sure if they had it right at the beginning, but not long after. And since I was in the printing industry, I got to print it for them. So I had to type it up and I read through everything that was in it. And uh, I noticed that there were some differences. Uh, you know, I've just moved here to uh, to charity and I noticed that there were some differences in this little book. Their, their book didn't have quite as much detail about how we should do certain things. And I kind of wondered whether that will work or not. I don't know if any of you had any thoughts like that or not. But, but I remember, you know, the, the Mennonite discipline that I was used to would even mention things like uh, you know, the women's hosiery should be black and at least 30 denier or denier. Uh, how many of you remember that? Nobody. How many of you know what 30 denier is? <laughs> uh, well, uh, 30 denier is a measure. Uh, it's the thickness of the yarn that is used to make nylon stockings for women. It's pretty thin. 30 denier is really thin. But uh, we actually said in our, our discipline that the, the, the yarn had to be at least 30 deniers thick to make hose. We also mentioned that the you know, shoes were to be black, black footwear. Cars were to be uh, dark cars. And the brethren were to wear suits, you know, with that special cut, you know. And uh, by the way, those suits are kind of expensive. 
Um, no big point on that. And hats. I'm not sure why men were supposed to wear hats. But, uh, yeah, hats were in there, too. So in some of those things, some of those details that were missing in Charity's book, I didn't really have a problem with. I thought, you know what? I'm not sure some of those details are actually in the big discipline. Right? This is the little one. This is the big one. But there was a line in Charity's Christian confession that surprised me. It said, Brethren, do not speak evil one of another based on James 4.11. And I thought, ah, I've never seen that in a discipline before. But that's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, by the way, I don't think it's in anymore. I'm not sure why. Somehow or other, we took it out again somewhere along the line. I'm not sure if we decided that wasn't very important or not so important or, or, or what. I guess I would like to say that I think that had we, had we kept that point a little more focused than we have, we might have avoided a lot of problems. I wish we would not have spoken evil one of another as some of us have done. It's not a good idea. Well, anyway, why was it there? Why is it no longer there? I don't know. Uh, My understanding of these little books is uh, that it sort of sets forth in a nutshell the important points, right? That's what they're for, right? I'll agree with that. And uh, historically, uh, sometimes these little books or, or statements have been used to uh, address current issues like the Schleitheim Confession of Faith. Uh, I think uh, Dave Eschen has something about that and everything. That was used to address some issues of the of the present day it, that the church wanted to say no we're we're taking a stand about this this is important and we're doing it this way so I understand that these little confessions of faith have pla- place like that and they're useful uh, various ways historically and 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 I realize that not everything is in these little books you know not everything is in the Sleitheim Confession of Faith that we believe is important. And uh, so not everything has to be in these little books. Uh, not everything needs to be there. But uh, we're sort of uh, defining what major foundational truths are and, and uh, who we associate freely with and uh, who may influence us and, and so on, right? That's why we have these little books. So, title of my message this morning is Major Points Missing in Our Confession of Faith. I want to speak about some things that are not at least directly mentioned in here. There may be a little bit of inference, but they are certainly not directly mentioned in our little faith, our confession of faith. And... uh, I think they are important, very important. 
So, more on that a little bit later. But maybe when you look at this uh, little booklet, and uh, maybe you're completely satisfied with all these major points. You know, if you look through here, it's uh, the Bible and the Trinity, and which is God the Father and Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost. We agree with all that. The fall of man and Satan and heaven and hell and salvation and sanctification and evangelism. And well, that's all the major points, right? Maybe you're satisfied with those major points. But the question I raised to you this morning is, would Jesus agree that these are the major points? Would Jesus agree that these are the important points? One day, there was a group of Sadducees. You might turn to that if you want to in, in Matthew uh, 22. I'll start there once. Uh, one day, there was this group of Sadducees that had gathered together and they were discussing their confession of faith. They didn't call it that, but that's what I call it. They were discussing their confession of faith and they wanted to know what Jesus thought of this. Because you see, in their confession of faith, they don't believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees don't. That is why they are Sadducee. (laughs) But no, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection and so their minds sort of went following this and they, they thought they had a point. They said, well... Well, if there's a resurrection, what are you going to do with these people that, you know, well, like this one man who died uh, and he didn't have any children, so his brother took his wife to wife to raise up, you know, seed like the law says they should do. But before he got around to having any children, he died too. And and then the second uh, brother took her to wife and and there were seven, seven boys like this and all seven of them took her to wife and didn't bear any seed. Now, I think that's a very improbable story. But anyway, I think maybe this was uh, maybe a setup or something. I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, all seven of these brothers had her to wife and didn't bring forth any children. So now the problem is that in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? Because they didn't have, he didn't have any children with any of them. I guess you could say that if he had children with the fourth one, then in the resurrection he'd be the fourth one's wife, right? And the others would just be out of luck, I guess. They thought they had a point. Now remember, their point was that there was no resurrection. But Jesus said to them, you do err, not knowing the scriptures. Because first of all, they aren't going to be married in heaven. But if you're thinking that there is no resurrection, let me talk to you about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he proved to them from the scriptures that there was a resurrection. Good job. They couldn't say anything. The Pharisees loved it. The Pharisees didn't like these Sadducees that were saying it. There's no resurrection because the Pharisees confess there is a resurrection. And by the way, as I was thinking about this, I looked and, oh, uh, 
Alas, the resurrection isn't in here either. I don't know why. It's an important point. I think we all agree that it's an important point, but the resurrection isn't in there. That's not what I'm going to talk about today, though. Um, so the Pharisees said, that's a good, that was, that was a good, that was a really good answer. Well, I wonder if you have any other good answers. And so they, one of them came to Jesus and said, so I'm going to word this in my own words a little bit, if you'll leave me to do that. And he said, so, so Jesus, what is the most important thing? What's the most important thing? And Jesus had a ready answer for them. Almost like he was waiting for them to do that. If you go to Matthew 22, verse 23, we can read that answer. Um, (coughs) Actually, it's in uh, 23. It's actually further than that. Down. It's actually in... uh, Let me see, where are we here? It's actually in verse 37. After all this thing about the Sadducees and everything. In verse 37. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Well, that's quite a statement, isn't it? We're all very familiar with that statement. I'm not sure if we understand how important that statement is. It is important enough that it was recorded just about like that, almost exactly, three times, once each in the Synoptic Gospels, and I think it's also in John just worded differently than that. <clears throat> so let's go to Mark chapter 12 and 30. And let's read it again in, uh, in Mark chapter 12. And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength, this is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth. For there is one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the soul and with all the strength and to love his neighbor as himself, that is more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. In other words, you just about have it. Now, if you continue on this search right here, what you've got, 
You'll get it. You're on the right track. You're just about there. Interesting. Well, let's flip over yet to Luke chapter 10 and read it there. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempting him said, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, This seems to be a little bit different question here. It seems like a little bit different setting. Maybe Jesus gave this teaching various times. It seems almost like that would be the case here. Anyway, Jesus answered him this time and he says, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And if you'll notice, Jesus or this lawyer answers with what Jesus had answered sometime earlier perhaps. I don't know. But anyway, he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. I wonder how he got that answer so together like that. Uh, I'm going to make a little assumption here that maybe the fer- this scribe or whatever might have heard Jesus teaching on a prior day and that is what Jesus said. So he parrots what Jesus said. That's an assumption. I can't prove that. All right. And Jesus said to him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. Now, can the gospel be any more simple than that? This do, and thou shalt live. You got it. Now, if you read on, he wanted to justify himself, it says. And he began to say, yeah, but, 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 but who's my neighbor? And, of course, we have the story of the Good Samaritan that follows. And all of you know that story. I don't suppose we have to read that this morning. But Jesus said, well, you know, there was this man that went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, you know, tell among thieves and so on. And we all know that story. And, and at the end of that, he says, so now who was neighbor? Right? So a little definition about who's your neighbor and who you can help. And, and I guess we all understand that's pretty broad, isn't it? Pretty broad. Yes. Well, I'd like to back up a little bit now. Can you rewind a little bit with me? The people came to Jesus and they said, uh, so Jesus, what is the most important point? What is really, I mean, where do we start? And I don't know what you would expect Jesus to say if you hadn't heard this. You might assume that maybe Jesus would go back to Genesis 1.1. Well, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth and, you know, lay out the principles, creation, God. Those are major points, right? That's what we do, right? We talk about, well, first point in here is the Bible and then God, right? Okay, I don't have a problem with that. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't go to Genesis. He didn't go to creation. 
he went to the law. And he picked out two phrases, not next to each other, by the way. Uh, this you'll find in De- Deuteronomy 6, 5. It says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And the other part is found in Leviticus. Kind of, even in a different book. Leviticus 19.18 Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am Jehovah. So, this is Jesus' confession of faith and practice. This is my little object lesson, by the way. Jesus said, Okay, the big issues are love God and your neighbor as yourself. This is what is really important. And everything else, he sort of said this, I'm going to say this in my own words now again. Everything else is subtitles and subpoints, a clarification of how to do the main points. And then he said, nothing else is more important than this. Let me ask you a question this morning. What if Jesus actually meant exactly what he said? Nothing else is more important than this. Nothing else is greater. Do this and you shall live. Do you understand that? Do you understand those two points? How many think you understand it? Ooh, I don't see any hands. Well, is it important to understand this? How many of you think it's important? Ah, uh-huh, now I know you're awake. All right, thank you. I agree, it is important. It's a really big lesson, I must say. <clears throat> we believe that correct doctrine and correct practice is important, right? Do we have it correct? When Jesus was giving his statement here, you know, what's important, he does not admonish us to be conservative or to keep the church pure or to make sure that we have a holy communion, even though all of that is important, by the way. I'm not knocking that. That isn't, those are important points. But that's not the first important point. That's not where you begin. And I'm afraid sometimes that's where we begin. Okay? He does not say to us that we shall obey the Lord, or serve the Lord, or honor the Lord, or be loyal to the Lord. There are lots of Christians who can obey, serve, and honor God. But, do they 
love him? Do they love the Lord? You see, loving is different than serving and obeying. It'll cause serving and obeying and loyalty. But loving is different. Joshua, may I use you as an illustration? Okay. Joshua just got married, right? He knows what love is about, right? Thinks he does, at least. (laughs) All right. Well, do you see a big difference between love and service and obedience and all that? You see a difference? I do, too. Yeah, this is not a trick question. You don't have to be afraid of me. No, I, let me illustrate. I don't know if you have an employer. I don't know what you do for your home. What do you do for work? Construction. construction. Okay. I don't know who you work for. But let's just say you work for some construction boss, and maybe he's not, I don't know what your boss is like, but maybe he's not exactly the nicest kind of fellow, but he gives you a job, right? You're glad to have a job. Uh, you like the work. And so you work every day. You go there to work. You serve your boss every day. You take orders from him. You do things the way he wants it done. If he says, go do this job today, you're off to that job and you do that today. And uh, yeah, you serve him. You obey him. You honor him. He's boss. He says, no, no, we don't want to do it that way. Well, then we're not doing it that way, right? Okay. So you love, you serve and honor him. You might even be loyal to him. Somebody walks up to you and says, hey, uh, you know, um, I'd like to build a house someday. Who would you recommend? He said, oh, my boss, right? Sure, go to him, right? Loyal. But do you love your boss? Would you marry him? No. See, you know, Joshua knows what it's like to love somebody enough, enough to say, everything I have from here on out, I'm going to share with my wife. Bank accounts, cars, time, where we go. I want to be with her. I want to stay with her. Everything I have is also hers. Right? Hope so. Yeah, me too. That's the way I want to live. That's love. Willing to give, lay down everything on the line from here on. You wouldn't do that with your boss, would you? Not much. Not likely. Duty-bound Christianity. Duty-bound Christianity is wearing. Grudging. Unthankful. fretful, and perhaps even fearful. But there are a lot of people, I believe, who live their Christianity just that way. They live their Christianity because they know they should be a Christian. They got a Bible that tells them how to live. 
And so they believe that and they're going to live it even if it hurts. They are loyal. And they are obedient. If God says, put a woman's veiling on, you'll put a veiling on, right? Whether you feel like it or not, right? Because it says so. Right? That's altogether different, my friends, than love. That's altogether different than coming to God and realizing that God is good. He is good. He is unfailingly good. It is altogether different to know that everything that God said in this word, He said it for your good. He loves you. He is excited about you. He wants to share life eternal with you. He loves you. That feels altogether different than thou shalt. Are you with me? All right. Do you love God? No, do you love God? Do I love God? How do you know? How do you know you love God? You have not seen God at any time. How do you know you love God? Right? Bible says that, doesn't it? No man has seen God at any time. If you don't love your brother whom you have seen, how can you love God whom you have not seen? That's in John, right? How do you know you love God? How do you know? If this is the most important issue, thou shalt love the Lord thy God and thy neighbor as thyself then certainly you're not going to have to learn how to do this, right? I mean, it's pretty important stuff. A little while ago I asked you if you thought you had it and you didn't think you had it, so I guess this sermon is in order, right? <clears throat> anyway. John, yeah, this was in First John 4, verse 20. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he who that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. And I'd like to say to you this morning, don't hang on that word hate in that verse there. It says, you know, he that hateth his brother. Uh, it doesn't mean quite like what it seems to mean in our modern language here. Uh, hate there is simply loveth not. And it says that later on in the verse there. He that loveth not. You, know, you see, some people think that they can not love their brother as long as they don't hate him. Right? I mean, you know, I wouldn't think of hating somebody, would I? 
I mean, I just, yeah, you, you, you may not do that, right? So you don't hate anybody. But there are some people you sure don't lose a lot of love on. Is that right? Am I right? Am I right? Okay, a few honest people here. He that loveth not his brother, how can he love God whom he has not seen? I'm still learning on this. So how do we get a hook on this? How do we... How do we get to the place where we really love God and we know that we love God and we're doing it right? How do you know? How do you get a hook on that? Well, I'm still learning. I want you to know that I'm not sharing this message this morning from a place of experience and a place of accomplishment. I'm not. I'd like you to know this morning that this message hits me about as broadside as anybody. Okay? So I'm not saying I got the answers. Look at me. No. I'm saying I got the answers because it's written. And this hits me as broadside as anybody. I want you to know that. But how do you know that you love God? Well... (sighs) As I was preparing this message, I was thinking, well, when I get to this point, I'll just walk over here to the window and, and have you look out the window. But it's also foggy out there, so you can't see much out there. But uh, in your mind, you can just imagine this for a moment, that you look out the window as far as you can see. And that this isn't exactly the best place because you can't see all that far. But even when it's not foggy. But... Imagine being on the mountaintop and looking as far west as you can see. Way out there. The horizon. If you went in a car out there to the horizon as far as you can see, what would you see there? You'd see some more, right? And then, if you went out that far again, you would see some more, right? And if it's heading west, eventually you would get to the west coast. That's really far out there, right? How many of you have been to the west coast? Good. Takes a couple days to drive there, right? I want you to know that all of this space is a gift. For you. From God. It's a gift. He gave us all this great big world to live in. That's kind of awesome. Well, how many of you have been to Europe? That's the other side of the pond. Okay, a few. I've never been to Europe. Maybe I can go there this summer. I kind of hope to. Never seen Europe. But by faith, I know it's a whole lot more land over there. Right? At least I know a little bit about geography. I've looked at the globe at least a little bit. And I know that over there, though I have never seen it, there is a lot more territory over there. All given to us. A gift from God. 
How many of you have been to Africa? Okay, a few. I've never been to Africa. How many of you have been to South America? A couple. I've never been to South America either. How many of you have been to Australia? Uh, no one, I don't believe. Okay. I haven't been either. How many of you have been to Asia? A few. I haven't been there either. I mean, this is a really big world, right? And most of us have never seen all of it. This is a really big world. It's all been given to us as a gift. Pretty big gift, right? Well, that's not the end. Maybe I should ask you, why does all this exist? Well, it exists because God made it specially as home for us. This is our home. All of this world that we know about did not exist before we existed. Well, maybe a couple of days earlier. But you see, God made it with you in mind. It didn't exist just because it existed, contrary to what evolutionists think. This took place, this came into being because God made it specially because he had you in mind. That's interesting, isn't it? That's not quite enough, is it? Let's stretch your mind a little further right away. Go out at night and look up at the sky and you see the stars. Those endless stars. How big is it? Stretch a tape measure across it, will you? Never could. Stars, as far as you can see on a clear night. And most of them just look like stars. But how many of you have ever had the opportunity to look through a telescope and see the rings of Saturn. A couple people. Beautiful rings around Saturn. Can't see them with your eyes, just your naked eyes. But when you get a nice big telescope, you know, and you point it up there at that little bright spot in the sky, behold, it's a beautiful planet with rings around it. It's beautiful. Okay? Hmm. Why does it exist? It exists for one purpose. It exists to tell you about God. If you have even a bigger telescope, you could point it at a bright spot over there in the sky that's that's the Orion Nebula. Now, I have never seen the Orion Nebula through a telescope because all the telescopes that I've ever had didn't do justice to it. Well, I did see the Orion Nebula, but it was just a bright spot. It just looked like a fuzzy star. Okay? Because that's all the bigger telescope I had. But if you get a really big telescope, you know, like uh, NASA has and stuff like that, you can really, you can really see the Orion Nebula. I've seen pictures of it. And they are beautiful. I mean, all that purple stuff, you know, and red and, uh, wow, the Orion Nebula is a beautiful thing. Why does that exist? It exists to communicate to you who God is. 
Because you see, God wants to get your attention. He does. He is interested in you. And he wants you to know who he is. This is the most important point. Absolutely beautiful. Well, and then the universe is just bigger than that. You know I mean, it's just beyond, it's bigger than comprehension, really, I think. You know, we just keep getting bigger telescopes and we just keep reaching further and further. And every time we get a bigger telescope, we discover, yeah, wow, there was more out there than we ever knew about before. And we're, I don't think we're still at the edge of it yet. And it's there to show us who God is. But that's not enough. Now, you need to know something about God that goes way beyond all that. Way beyond all that. You see, God is so... God's love for man, which made this all happen. I mean, I missed the point here. I wanted to say and That is that God made all this universe and everything just because he had interest in man. Right? It's all related to man. It didn't happen first and then man evolved out of that. Now, that's not the way it was. God made it specially because he was making man. Got to get that point right. Okay. Now, all of this was for man. But God is so in love with man that he created from the dust of the earth. You know, he came down here in this ground and he put some dust here together and he made this man with his own hands. And he... Oh, this here just really blows my mind away. But he breathed into him the breath of life. And this creature of dust laying on the ground suddenly became a living soul. Whatever that means. But it means a lot more than a dog, I can assure you that. When man breathed into, when God breathed into man the breath of life, man became a living soul. He was like God in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways. In the image of God created he him. Why? Why would God do something like that? Why he did it? Because he wants a love relationship with you. Now I know you won't understand that. But it's true. I don't understand it either, but I'm delighted about it. God so wanted to have a love relationship that he made us to have that love relationship. That's pretty lofty. And, And then, he did that in spite of the fact that he knew from the get-go That you and I would be rebellious. And so, from the beginning, before the foundation of the world, God had a plan for that. And he decided that he would send his own son into this world to die on Calvary's cross to demonstrate the kind of love he wants to have with you. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? I mean, that's worth saying amen about, right? (laughs) 
You know that you and I don't not know how to love like this. We don't. In our lost sinful state, we have no clue. Seriously, we have no clue how to love like this. We are so selfish, so self-centered, sometimes even cruel and hateful. And we have no clue how to love like this. But you know what? God had a fix for that too. If you haven't figured out that God is good, it's time for you to wake up. God had a fix for that too. He sent forth His own Spirit into your hearts whereby you may cry, Abba, Father. You see, you don't have it. I, you really don't. I, I mean, none of us do, right? Wow, that was all stuck together. Uh, I'm sure that all of you have probably seen this little diagram already. Three concentric circles. And we say that uh, this is the, the body, and this is the soul, and this is the spirit. How many of you have seen that before? Okay, yeah, that's good. I, I think that's a, a nice uh, little diagram to help uh, explain a few things about spirituality. And usually the story goes a little bit like this. You know, the devil works at us coming through our body and our senses and trying to gain control of our soul. But God works through his spirit that is within. He speaks to us inside of us. The spirit of God speaks to us. And now the, the battleground is in your soul, right? And your soul has to decide whether it's going to listen to God's spirit or it's going to listen to the outward influences. Okay? Whole big message on that. I won't go into all that. Okay? But that's an interesting thing. But, uh, yeah. So we're talking about the spirit of God that is within you, that is guiding you and continually calling you to love him. The spirit of God continually says, Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Please love the Lord. Love the Lord thy God. Please understand. And it is only because we have this spirit crying out within us that we get anywhere close to doing this. Without that spirit calling us, you're without hope. Totally without hope. This is true. But this diagram doesn't quite cut it for what Jesus said. If man is body, soul, and spirit, what did Jesus mean when he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy... How did it say that? Body, soul, and spirit? Yeah, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Where do you put that? Yeah, that's right. Well, let's just take this soul here and zoom it over here. So we just have a, a soul over here instead. And this is what we're talking about, okay? Now, there's this spirit that still is within us, and that's all this separately. And then there's this body and so on that's separate. But in this soul of ours, we have, we have four parts, don't we? Don't we? Can you see it that way? 
I don't know if it's exactly equal parts or anything. I don't know about that. But, uh, yeah, we love the Lord with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. Right? Like I'm a little ahead of myself. Ahead of my notes, anyway. Well, yeah, I'll just leave it there. I'll, I'll just miss that point. So, our body, soul, and spirit, and so on. I, maybe we could just look at the uh, at the lawyer's answer that was in uh, in Mark. You know, when the lawyer said, well, you're right. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and your neighbor, that's more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Well, your heart, what is that? Tell me what your heart is. Well, I think it's the will. I, I, this is how I define it. Maybe I'm wrong. If you want to argue with me later, that's fine. But uh, we won't argue. We'll just discuss it. Uh, yeah, heart, I think, is the will. It's where you make the decisions. You shall love the Lord thy God with all your will, with all your decisions, with all your... Okay? And you should love the Lord with all of your mind. That's understanding. That's how you think. You know, how you process. Your rationale. The way you think about things. The, line, the way you... S- Make sure God's in there. And you love the Lord. And He is first in, it, in, in everything you think. Okay? And you shall love the Lord with all your soul. I think we sort of know what that means, right? That's your emotions, right? You love the Lord... You love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. Soul. I mean, you love and you hate wickedness. Right? It's passion. It's emotion. And all your strength. Maybe, maybe I don't know. Strength it means, simply means all you got, right? Everything you can put into it. Put it in, I mean... Pedal to the metal, right? Maybe that includes your body. I don't know. I think it does. Because it's going to affect the way you live. Okay? So I guess I'd sort of make soul or the strength include the body a little bit. Okay. Did you know that the Mennonite culture is not very soulful. How many of you knew that? Oh, yeah. Not news to you. We're not very soulful. We are trained by our culture to suppress the soul. We don't Show our emotions too much. That's eh, not so good, you know. 
don't want to get I don't want to get carried away, right? <clears throat> I'd like to suggest to you this morning that that is a weakness in our culture. I don't know how you love the Lord your God with all your soul without getting a little excited about it. You know, and I'm not suggesting that we should be, you know, there are, we all know these places that get out of hand, you know, these holy rollers or whatever they call them, that, you know, they get, they have their meeting and they, they're rolling around on the floor and they're barking like dogs and they're, uh, it just really gets out of hand. I'm not talking about that. No. I believe that there, things should be done decently and in order and everything like that and there is a, there is a place for reverence and holiness and everything like that. But I want to say to you this morning that we are a far, far away from rolling on the floor, aren't we? I think we are. And I'm suggesting to you this morning that it would be good for you to let your soul at liberty a little more than you do. Okay? You know, I think it is just all right to have some really holy amens. Now, I don't think that it's good to have people uh, whooping and hollering and, you know, catcalling and everything. I've been in places like that already. And, it, and the worshipfulness just seems to be, it's kind of weird. But I think some holy amens would be all right, don't you think? I think so. I think, you know, when you sit there dead-faced, I don't think you're letting your soul operate. And I don't see how you love the Lord with all your soul when you have it crimped like that. Got me? All right. Now, there are some people that love the Lord with all their mind. And they have, they go on and on and on with their rationale. And some of us get a little tired of that. And they say, oh, man, that's so intellectual. I mean, so-and-so is just, I mean, he's an intellectual freak. Listen, don't you criticize him too much. He might just be loving the Lord with all his mind. And I'd like to encourage you to the best of your ability to love the Lord with all your mind. It's a healthy experience. Okay? Love the Lord with all your mind. Love the Lord with all your soul. We don't do so well on those things. I think we could improve a little. Well, we... uh also have two more there, but we do pretty good with that, right, don't we? We, are, we love the Lord with all our will, right? We make decisions that way. We love the Lord in our actions, right? That's our body. We do pretty good with that. Maybe we could still improve a little. Oh, I was going to say this about the, the soul thing a little bit. If you gave me a gift, a nice big gift, a wonderful gift, and I took it from you, and with a totally dead face and monotone, I said, thank you. 
what would you think? You'd say, what's wrong? Right? What's wrong? I mean, don't you like it? Right? Because, because I didn't show anything. How do you worship God? Sometimes we sing some of the loftiest songs with a totally dead face and very little emotion. I think I think we got to get this, don't we? You know, we sing On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. I wonder what's for dinner. But could you get a little soul in that? Could you really think that on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame? That's not very fast, is it? And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Do you sing it that way? Or do you sing it draggy? I'm telling you that this morning I've noticed a lot of things. Not this morning necessarily, but sometimes we sing so draggy. Some of the best songs in the book. And I know you're not thinking. Am I too hard on you? No, I'm not trying to, to whoop you. I'm just trying to encourage you. I'm encouraging you to think what you're talking about. You know, sometimes we think that when something is, when the singing is dragging, that the, the answer to dragging is speed it up, speed it up. No, no, no. The answer to dragging singing is not speed it up. It's get a little more worship in it. It doesn't have to be fast. What it's missing is worship. Okay? And so if some Sunday morning you think that, man, the thing is just really draggy this morning. Then I encourage you to worship. Worship. It doesn't have to be any faster. You can go the same speed everybody else is doing. But won't you get a little worship in it? Okay? Keep that in mind. It doesn't have to be faster. In fact, by the way, too much speed is kind of a hindrance to worship. Sometimes I wish you'd just slow it down a little bit so I can really feel that. Am I wrong? No, come on. Let's worship the Lord with all our soul. And I'll tell you something. It's something that is a tremendous blessing. If you don't know it, you ought to learn about it. Well, that reminds of a story I was going to tell you. When I was first born again, back there in school, where I was telling you about, I had learned to sing a little different. And on September, we went to school. And one of the first uh, devotions there, we got our songbooks out and we began to sing. And, and I, I just got into this song. And I just got started singing, you know. I didn't think about anything. I was just enjoying the words. And, 
and uh, and I suppose I I bobbed my head a little bit, you know, with the song a little. And, I mean, this was a meaningful song, and I was, you know, I kind of probably bobbed my head a little bit with that, you know. And at recess time, my classmates made fun of me. Oh man, they robbed, they they just went all over me for bobbing my head with a song. And I suddenly discovered that that's not very cool in the midnight circles. Yeah, (laughs) better not bob your head too much. And then from that day on, I began to crimp my soulishness a little. Oh, better make sure that nobody sees me and thinks I'm weird, you know. And I came under this bondage of not allowing my soul vent. That's a sad thing. I lived under that for quite a few years. I went to church, and I always made sure I didn't sing too, too rambunctiously, you know. Now, I'm not talking about rolling on the floor or anything. You understand? I'm just talking about worshiping. And finally, the day came when I came to charity circles for the first time. And I discovered that we have liberty here to sing. I can't tell you what that meant to my soul. I remember one of the first times I was in church over there at the charity church. And and we had this wonderful song. And I looked up and I saw Ross Ulrich sitting there. And he had a glow on his face. And he was just worshiping God with that song. And I said, you can do that. And no one thinks it's funny. Please help me establish that in this church. We can do that and no one thinks it's strange. You can worship the Lord that way from your soul. If you don't know what that's like, I highly recommend it to you. Oh, I must hasten on the most important thing that Jesus said was to love the Lord thy God with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy heart, with all thy strength. This is the first and great commandment. This brings us to to understand that God really wants us in the soul, in our whole inner being, not just our body. What you see standing up here this morning is just my body. You can't really see my soul, right? But there is a soul in here. And there's there's a real man inside of here, a spiritual man that you cannot see. But he feels and he thinks and he makes decisions. And that's the real me, isn't it? What you see is just my body. But inside of this body, there's a real being. And that's the being that God really wants to connect with. That's the being that is inside of each of you. And this is the opportunity for you to experience God in a way that is extremely special. And I call this the great Mysterium Tremendum. That's Latin. 
I like it in Latin because it sounds so lofty. But what it really means is just tremendous mystery. But it is the most tremendous mystery on earth. I mean, this is the opportunity for us whereby we can enter into being one with God. That's a pretty big idea. It really is. And Jesus said it is the one important thing. Nothing else matters. That we may be one with him. I thought it was very good this morning that in the opening, our brother read from John 17. Do you understand what Jesus was actually praying there? He said in his prayer, Oh, Father, I am about this business of trying to communicate to these people how to be one with us. And and they're getting it. Slowly they're getting it. Little by little they're getting it. But Father, I want them to be one with us even as I am one with you. How good is that? That's the measure. Even as the Father and the Son are one. I mean... Without the one, you don't have the other, right? And Jesus says, Oh, my heart's desire is that these that you have given me out of this world may be one with us. Just like my Father and the Son are one. That's a mysterium tremendum. This is his unending passion. This is what he died for. This is what makes him patient and long-suffering and sacrificial. This is love. That we may be one with him. Do you love God this morning? Do you love God? You're learning, aren't you? In order to love God like this, you've got to think like God, right? How could you be one with God if you don't think like God? Right? You have to learn to think like God or you won't make this. Now let me see. How does God think? Well, He doesn't think like we tend to think sometimes. I'm sure of that. If you think like God, you've got to love your neighbor as yourself. Because your neighbor is just as important to God as what you are. You see, that's what's on God's heart. The one thing that God's, that's been on God's heart ever since the beginning and before the beginning, even back there when God took counsel with himself and he said, let us make man in our own image. The one thing that was on his heart was this. That he would enter into us and we would enter into him and we would be one. That's what's That's what it's about. That's why he made the creation. That's why he sent his son into the earth to redeem his creation. 
That's the one thing that is important to God. The one and only thing that is really important to God. And so, if you realize that, the most important thing on God's agenda is every one of us. This means that if you're going to think like God, every one of us has to be on your agenda equally and importantly. Ooh, that's a big lesson, isn't it? It is for me. Let me ask you a few questions here to get you thinking. Please don't think I'm being critical. Well, what if somebody just isn't quite on our page? You know, he shows up at our church, he wants to come to church here, wants to be with us, but boy, he really thinks differently than we do. What shall we do with this person who doesn't think quite like we do? We, uh, well, uh, <clears throat> uh, well, we, we want to have unity here. Well, wait, wait a minute. Is unity more important than oneness with God? Let's get our unity right. Unity is important. Unity with the Father first and His Son. Right? Think about this. How willing are we to just send that person down the road to somewhere else where they're more like him? Ever heard of that before? Where would you be today if God had treated you like that? If God looked at you, I mean, you came, to, you came to the Lord the first time God called you, right? Not so much, right? <clears throat> but if, if God looked at you and, and gave you, you know, six chances or two dozen or even a hundred chances to become born again, and you just, you know, you just weren't on base with him yet. Where would you be today if God said, well, yeah, Myron there, he just doesn't think like I do. He'll never fit here. Just send him on down the road there to the other people that think like that. Oh, where do you think I'd be today? I guess in hell, right? No, God does not think like that. God thinks passionately about every person and he just hangs in there. Long-suffering, long-suffering, merciful. He keeps chipping away little by little by little by little. And finally, hopefully at least some of us catch on. Well, that's enough for you to think about, isn't it? How much patience do you think God spent on you? And... Now that you got it right, yes, amen. And now that you got it right, are you sure you got it right? Uh, maybe God might critique you a little. Is that all right? Are you really sure that you think the way God thinks? 
That's worth thinking about, isn't it? Another verse from 1 John, and I must kind of shut this down. It's running out of time here. Uh, 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. You know, that's the only way you could love. Otherwise, you wouldn't get it done. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. If you don't get this right, you don't know God, period. In this was manifest the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love. This is how we understand love. And not that we love God. <laughs> oh, uh, that wouldn't work, would it? But that He loved us. Uh, lost my place. Where are we here? Because uh, yeah, because God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I guess you know what that big word means. Beloved, if God so loved us, it certainly makes sense that we should love each other, right? Certainly. If we're going to at all begin to think like God, then certainly we ought to love one another as well. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, that's proof that God dwells in us. And his love is perfected in us. It grows and grows and grows. You might not have this perfect this morning, but are you growing in it? Are you being perfected in it? Is it changing from day to day? Is the way you think from day to day growing? His love is perfected in us. Hopefully. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. We think like He thinks. Would never think like that myself. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Closing point here. Just suppose for a moment that we rewrote this book. Uh, I'm not campaigning. That's the leadership's decision or whatever. If you want to do that, that's up to you. I'm not saying you need to do this. But just supposing we did. Supposing we rewrote this book and we wrote in here that we believe and confess that to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is the most important issue with us. 
And that next to that, each member is to love his neighbor as himself. These two things are the most important points in our fellowship. Nothing else is as important as this. This is going to be our first and main focus. And then we would add subpoints and Bible verses to that. There's lots of them. We would not have any trouble getting a whole book full of those. And then after that, we also believe and confess that the Bible is the word of God and the rest of this. How would that affect us? If we actually put that in our standard book, how would that affect us? Would we operate the same? Would we think the same? I have to admit, I have never seen a confession of faith like this that had that in. Maybe there one of those exists. I don't know about it. I have never seen that written down like that. But what if a church made those two points the two main points? What if? Now, whether you think this would or even could work, doesn't matter. And whether you like this message this morning, or you think I'm extreme or crazy, that doesn't matter either. Because what does matter is, that's what Jesus said was important. That's what he said was important. He's the head. He gets to say. That's what he said was important. And when we look at it, we may be overwhelmed. But let me say this. It's not as difficult as you think. Because he has given you his spirit. And you can learn this. And in fact, it is so easy... The terms are so easy. He didn't spell out all the details. He made it very simple. He said, Love your neighbor as thyself. Is that complex? Is that hard to understand? No. No. But doing it is a little tougher, isn't it? I admit that carrying out all of this sometimes gets you in places which isn't very comfortable. It wasn't comfortable for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane either. When he was living this out and showing you how to do it, he himself said, Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, This is tough. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I know that if you try to live this, you're going to get into some situations which are really tough. And it'll stretch you. But this is what is important. This is what is important. Above all else. 